0: Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jared Bumpers, Assistant Professor of Preaching and Evangelism here at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Mitchell Chase to the podcast. Dr. Chase is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He has written several books in the areas of biblical studies, hermeneutics, and discipleship. He also serves as a preaching pastor of Cosmodale Baptist Church, and he's been there since 2012. Dr. Chase, welcome to Preaching and Preachers.
1: Thank you, Dr. Bumpers. I'm glad to be a guest with you.
0: Man, we're so excited to welcome you back to the podcast. We had a previous conversation about typology in preaching and uh, pull some ideas from your book, 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory. And so what we want to do in this episode is we want to talk about allegory. And so, like we did in the last episode, we started with kind of a definition, gives us a, a baseline to work from, a framework to discuss allegory and preaching. And so, can you provide a, a definition for our listeners of, of allegory? What is allegory?
1: Sure, I will do my best to uh, tackle this particular question, but I must forewarn you: <laughs> this, the nature of this question, is very divisive among biblical interpreters. Not everybody is agreed on what exactly allegory is. So I'm going to make an effort by starting with the word itself. The word allegory comes from the idea of speaking other, of speaking other, that something that you are reading is about something else, Hmm. that to over-literalize it or to take what you're reading and say, this at its bare essence is, is definitely what's being communicated, would be to miss the representative and symbolic layers that texts can have. And allegory is a way of saying, what I'm reading is not the whole story here. What I'm reading is pointing. It's like a signpost, hmm. and it is indicating something other than what I'm actually seeing here with those bare words. And and that in itself is a good starting spot, but then again, the 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 discussion about allegory is fraught with far more challenges and controversy than a discussion on typology, which we enjoyed previously.
0: That's great. Oftentimes when, when you have conversations about allegory or allegorical ter- interpretation, people oftentimes will go to Galatians and they'll start talking about Paul's use of allegory or is Paul actually using allegory. And so kind of stepping away from definitions of allegory, going off script here a certain extent but what do you think is going on in in galatians when paul starts talking about jerusalem and sinai and and what's happening there
1: yeah i think paul is rightly reading the old testament first of all and that he as an inspired apostle is noticing that in the plan of god in the family of abraham it was interesting how abraham had a son of promise And Abraham had a son uh, by a slave woman and the free versus slave language is important for Paul because he is trying to encourage his Galatian readers to hold fast to the gospel and not deviate from it in pursuit of different works of the law in which they could perhaps firm up or even establish their standing before God in a more righteous way. That would be a completely misguided direction. And Paul recognizes that in the Old Testament, Hagar and Ishmael represent a way of thinking about God's words and God's plan that is off the rails. And it it is akin to He says slavery and the present Jerusalem and the children that are born according to the flesh. The opposite, the free woman and her son, the son of promise and the heavenly Jerusalem, this would obviously be what the reader should desire for themselves, what would be true of their own identity in Christ. And I think what Paul is doing is reading that historical narrative and noticing how spiritual realities were pulsating through those historical stories, a real Isaac and a real Ishmael. And yet those stories had lessons and spiritual truths that can be teased out all of those many centuries later by Paul in Galatians 4 and applicable to his Galatian readers so that they would trust God's revelation and in the gospel and not go after works of the law and be enslaved. There's probably much more to say about Galatians 4, but those are a few thoughts. And That's also a, a very convoluted and controversial passage for folks
0: yeah, I'm I'm sorry. I'm throwing yeah. you two debatable questions right out of the gate. No, that's uh, all right. But I think those are two things that most listeners immediately will think, okay, what do you mean by allegory and okay, well, what do we do with this well-known allegorical passage in in the New Testament? And I think even your your explanation there of historical realities, Paul is dealing with historical realities, you know, Hagar, Ishmael, these things actually happened, but he's using them to signify a spiritual truth something else. So
1: that's right, and that's really key for allegory, actually, because he talks about how in verse twenty-four, Galatians four twenty-four, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants—one from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery—and then on and on. So there is a there's a total awareness Paul has that these are historical characters. He believes the Bible, hmm. um, the Old Testament, Torah; these are historical figures, and yet these things also point beyond themselves. That's something that we're trying to recognize with the idea of allegory. There are significations that the text will have that something is pointing to something else. And it's not because the historical part isn't true. Uh, You know, allegory is a bit different from typology because typology is rooted in historical correspondences. Just like this in Galatians 4 and its use of Genesis, this allegorical use or this allegorical interpretation does have a historical element uh, at the root of it. But allegory doesn't have to. Uh, There can be other ways of depicting truth and different genres like prophecy and poetry that are using images and symbols that have to be interpreted. And so those things are pointing beyond themselves. Uh, Allegory doesn't have to be quite so tied to some historical realities like typology does.
0: We talked in the previous episode about the theological uh, underpinnings of typology And so we'd love to to circle back and talk about theological assumptions or foundations of allegorical interpretation. And so what are some theological principles or truths that undergird allegorical interpretation Hmm. in our understanding of allegory?
1: Well, one of these I want to overlap with our previous conversation then, because the same idea about typological reading is at play with allegorical reading that this is— a document, Genesis to Revelation, a single grand epic of redemptive revelation that God himself has inspired. The allegorical interpretations that people offer, whether they're in the early church years or much later throughout history, they believe that they are reading a book that God has inspired, and they're making connections all over the place. And the reason they're making connections all over the place If they're looking in genesis and they think about something in matthew or they're reading something in romans and they think about something in psalms they're making connections because of their immersion in the biblical text we might disagree with their conclusions okay i would be willing to say i think many allegorical suggestions in church history would be off base that i wouldn't imitate or follow but the assumption and instinct to see the Bible as God's inspired revelation that undergirds reading it this way, that instinct is pointing in the right direction. And I think we have to do more careful work as readers in the area of allegory. Hmm. But the same assumption that was with typological reading is at play with allegorical reading. What sort of book are we interpreting? And if this is a book given by God, inspired by His Holy Spirit, then we would not be surprised that things God has revealed are pointing beyond themselves to greater things.
0: Let me ask this question then. Why do you think, if there is a legitimacy to allegorical interpretation, why do you think so many people are averse to it? It seems to me, and maybe I've got a limited perspective here, but it seems to me like like allegory is often viewed as almost a swear word by interpreters and preachers if you advocate for allegorical interpretation, or maybe what some would call a spiritualization of the the biblical text, the walls go up, fences go up. Why why do you think that is? sure.
1: I think that they are familiar with some examples from church history that they've no doubt heard that were so alarming to hear, and they think there is no way somebody could objectively demonstrate that conclusion textually. I just came out of that interpreter's mind, you know, Mm -hmm. something that that guy ate that day that just, (laughs) you know, resulted in some interpretation that you can't imitate or follow the homework on. I sympathize with all of those concerns. I am against bad allegorical reading. (laughs) And so what I want to distinguish, what I want to distinguish is bad allegorical reading from being able to make a textual argument that something you're noticing in the text is pointing to something else. It's suggesting something other. And when I, when I have these conversations with folks, I think it's great to talk about Jesus's parables. Hmm. And Jesus's parables, I think these are great examples of the kind of thing we're trying to illustrate. Jesus talks about a sower who goes out to sow seed. He is not actually talking about somebody sowing seed. And we know that. In fact, when he talks about seed falling along the path and seed among thorns, we know because of something he says later in Matthew 13, that those are interpreted as ways of responding to the word about the kingdom. We're not talking about literal thorns. And therefore, when people interpret Jesus as parables, I would want readers to realize they're probably making some allegorical moves all the time that they aren't identifying it as such. And that's okay. As long as we're trying to interpret scripture faithfully, we might not always be able to put the proper label on what we're doing. But if we are reading something with a figurative instinct and making an allegorical conclusion because of the nature of what we're reading, well, what we're doing is we're saying these words are pointing to something other over here. That's what allegorical reading is. Somebody might be able to offer like a really tight Specific, overly specific definition of allegory to say, this is what allegory is and anything that's not this can't be allegory. I want to make a larger point here. That's really crucial for historical context. Um, in Henry de Lubac's very prominent and excellent study on medieval interpretation, he says that in church tradition, as far back as you can go into the early church interpretation, you can notice that they basically see the Bible as having two meanings, two levels of understanding, I should say, a literal sense and a spiritual sense. Hmm. And all De Lubac is trying to show you historically is that they believed that there was a real Abraham and a real Isaac, historical level, literal level, and they also believed that Isaac anticipated Christ. Or they believed, you know, that maybe the cord of Rahab, uh, the red, the scarlet cord in, in Joshua 2 would signify the cross. You know, they're making, they're making moves. Even if we agree with them or not agree with them, the point is that they are reading the text at a literal level and then suggesting something spiritual. Now, throughout the Middle Ages, that became really problematic. There were a lot of abuses of the spiritual sense of the text. spiritual meaning of the text. There was a a lot of of wild conclusions that were drawn that I don't think we should follow. When you get to people like Aquinas or Nicholas of Lyra, uh, these are pre-Reformation figures, and they really emphasized the literal sense of the text. In fact, they were more comfortable thinking of spiritual meanings as something that should be encompassed by the literal sense itself. When you actually get to people like Luther and Calvin, they are definitely drawing the same kind of conclusions about different genres and types and shadows that earlier people did in history, but they're calling them extensions of the literal sense. Mm. Sometimes what people are doing is using a term that might not be uh, someone else's preference for what someone is saying. If I'm, if I'm talking about a spiritual sense in Genesis 22 and the cross and Isaac's near death and all of that, another person might say, I think that's just a literal sense, that that's what the meaning of the, the text is, what Calvin would call the plain sense of the text. Hmm. And I think that that is well and good. We can use different terminology to make the same point.
0: I think most Christians read the Bible that way. I mean you, I agree like instinctually, without being taught or trained their natural inclination is to read the bible in a literal sense and also to to pick up you know spiritual significance behind the things uh, that are happening. I wasn't planning on asking this question but you talk about the literal sense and the spiritual sense it made me think of the quadriga or fourfold interpretation of scripture. Right. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on the, the quadriga and its usefulness for preaching.
1: Yeah, so this is an important uh, part of church history. This develops even before the days of Augustine, when people would consider the spiritual sense in more than one level. And then the writings of John Cassian, this becomes really clear. You have uh, the fourfold sense, the quadriga that you mentioned, where you have the literal, the literal sense of the text. And then the allegorical sense wasn't to ignore the literal at all. It was meant to be grounded in the literal sense. Do the words that I'm reading suggest something other than what is here? Is it pointing to some Christological truth? And so the allegorical sense would really envelop what would be considered early Christological types. That would be the spiritual sense more specifically unfolded. And within that spiritual sense, not only would you have the allegorical, but you'd also have something called the tropological. The tropological focused on Moral teachings that something I'm reading has a moral element to it that I'm to learn for my instruction, for my discipleship. The anagogical sense is the fourth of the fourfold sense. And the anagogical sense was pointing to something eschatological, something that's beyond, that would encourage and firm up our Christian hope. What I want to notice, though, after just mentioning those things out loud, preachers do this kind of thing all the time. Mm-hmm. Don't we? I mean, mm-hmm. we do this all the time. We are we are trying to take the text seriously. We are proclaiming what's going on in the context. We are trying to hold forth Christ in the full counsel of the Word of God. We're trying to encourage people in their discipleship, areas that we can exhort them in, warnings that they need to heed. We're trying to encourage them in their Christian hope and what is going to be fulfilled at the coming of Christ. We're doing this sort of thing in preaching all the time. I think you could obviously point to things in history There would be bad examples of this. Okay, well, I'm against bad examples of that too, yeah. but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, as the saying goes, let's look at what the purpose of that kind of grid was for. And I think the usefulness for our homiletics is it can be quite profound. We're probably doing that very kind of thing in practice. All the time It just comes down to realizing that maybe I've not labeled what I'm doing. Maybe I have not just considered what would what I'm doing fit in, or what sort of era of history is my practice more, you know, conformed to? I think preachers should consider the value of that kind of grid. What am I reading in its contextual sense? How does the canonical sweep of God's revelation help me see Christ here? And then, how does it encourage my discipleship and the life in the age to come? Those are great questions for preachers to ask about their sermons. Those are a few thoughts about the quadriga, and I'm glad you asked about it. It's really important throughout church history, and I would love to see a resurgence of appreciation for it among preachers.
0: Yeah, and I think even preachers listening, if they stop and listen to what you describe, these the fourfold method of interpretation, I think many of them will be able to identify, they could take their last sermon— hold it up and say, okay, yeah, here's where I explain the literal sense of the text. Here's where I make a spiritual application or or moral uh, implications from a text. They'll, They'll recognize it in their own preaching.
1: That's exactly right. And I do want to make another point about this that just came to mind. You know, Luther and Calvin didn't so much use the language of quadriga. They were very suspicious of spiritual abuses of the text in the Middle Ages, and rightly so. They would simply consider what I'm saying to be extensions of the literal sense. They might say, well, or modern preachers even might say, this is the difference between interpreting the text with exegesis and then applying the text to your listeners. And I would say, okay, I just think we're using different language to say the same thing. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what we're doing. And we're talking, though, about the same goal. Yeah, we're doing the same
0: thing. Different labels. In practice, what we're doing is, is identical. Amen. Well, you've mentioned this a couple times, the the possibility for abusing or misusing allegorical interpretation. And so in your book, you mentioned several kind of controls or guardrails. And so I'd love for you, as you think about allegorical and uh, interpretation and in the spiritual sense, what are some th- some guardrails or some principles for our listeners to keep in mind as, as they seek to to move in connection with the literal sense, but they seek to move beyond the literal sense to the spiritual sense?
1: Well, the, the first thing that comes to mind is similar to what I would argue with typological reading, that we want to ask, do I have textual reasons to build a cumulative case here? Not because I have to have five solid examples or something in the text. There's no council that ever met to give anybody a certain amount of correspondences for a type to work or an allegorical reading to be sound. But what's my, what's my textual case? And if I, if I actually can't demonstrate from the text that I'm making this particular case, that therefore I may just be dealing with my own imagination. One of the you know widespread kinds of abuses that you see in church history is when you read different interpretations of the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs, I think, lends itself to a symbolic and allegorical reading. You know, personally, I'm I'm convinced that that's an approach toward the text that these metaphors and the language and descriptions. Are, are suggesting something uh, more than what is read. And yet, sometimes interpreters will take something and read very strange ideas into uh, what this figure or metaphor or animal or mountain represents. I, I would want us to consider what, textual guardrails are going to help me make my case. If I could give a new Testament example here, that might be helpful. It's not a parable, but it's in the ministry of John the Baptist. And I talk about this in my book and I think it's relevant for listeners because it's a small detail and we would think, how could I deal with this? What would guide me to conclude this? And I'm thinking about John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist had a diet, and it was very strange. He had a diet of locusts and wild honey. (laughs) When you think about his particular diet, it's an interesting detail that they decided to include. You know, Matthew and Mark both report that John ate this way. You don't really get reports throughout the Gospels about what people were eating. From time to time, these meal scenes are going to be theologically central and and important in a passage. But I just simply mean to describe a character and to say, here's how he's dressed, and here's what he ate. We should think, wait a second, though. Why do I need to know that? One suggestion is to consider John's role. Well, he's a prophet, which means he proclaims the Word of God. He is proclaiming blessing for people who will follow the Lord. He is baptizing people in the Jordan River. He is also proclaiming, though, judgment upon the religious leaders who are defying the Lord in rebellion and any Jews and Gentiles who refuse to submit to the coming king. If the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then they should all repent. And John's ministry would warn about judgment. Well, there's something interesting about both of those pictures of honey and locusts when you think about the Old Testament. So here's what I want to suggest. What if those details about what John ate, he ate actually things that have an Old Testament background. In the Old Testament, honey was naturally something that would be associated with the promised land. In Exodus 3, the Lord says to Moses that he's going to lead the Israelites to a land flowing with milk and honey. It represented abundance and joy and and life and blessing. Locusts, on the other hand, were a clear mark in the Torah for judgment, an agricultural judgment that would be economically and geographically devastating. If John is a prophet and he is proclaiming something, exhorting the people toward what would be life and the one who's the lamb to take away the sins of the world and also promising judgment, it's interesting that he ate things that would also coincide with that. There were also prophets who ate. Think about Ezekiel, who eats a scroll in a vision in Ezekiel 2, and it was bitter to the taste. The idea of eating and prophetic revelation and proclaiming judgment and life for the people of God, those things go together. Now, I'm not telling you that locusts and honey could just mean anything. I'm not saying that locusts and honey would just mean this particular thing in church history or this particular nation in the world. I'm saying here's a suggestion that has some Old Testament argument to it, and I think I could make a case for it. Now, someone might not be persuaded that they should read the Diet of John the Baptist that way. Okay, fine and good. No problem. But if we are going to suggest some significance to what he ate, let's make a textual case. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, I think listeners will be able to, to trace your argument there. You're making a suggestion. And pointing to biblical evidence to support your claim, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Wonderful. A couple of things that that you mentioned in your book, making sure that your interpretation, algal, interpretation, doesn't contradict other clear passages of Scripture. You talk about not, yes. yeah, not violating the rule of faith, standing in line with the great tradition. All of those are other, uh, in addition to what you've already said, another reason for them to pick up your book, helpful explanations here, guardrails to make sure Okay, is it rooted in the literal sense? It doesn't contradict the rest of Scripture. Uh, Faithful believers in the past have interpreted Scripture this way. I'm probably on safe ground making this allegorical interpretation.
1: I think so. We are really not trying to be overly creative and original here. We really want to wonder what's the interpretive tradition behind us said about the text. And I think that's a humble posture we're called to, right? We are not the first people to read the Bible. We have a whole host of the cloud of witnesses before us, not just the inspired writers in the New Testament who've read the Old. I mean all of the people from the early church forward whose writings are so accessible at this point in history. We have so many writings that are so accessible, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming the resources that we can enjoy and thank God for. So we should. It should give us a posture of thanksgiving, but also humility that we would be willing to learn from people who haven't lived when we've lived and that people before us who've read the Bible have seen things for our study. Um, I think it would really uh, uh, bless us if we if we adopted that kind of posture and learn from them.
0: Amen. Is there anybody that you would point to as a good example? You've mentioned a lot of potential bad examples in church history, but is there somebody (laughs) who you think does a good job here?
1: Well, I mean, I think, for example, Martin Luther, I've mentioned him in our discussion about typology. Martin Luther was very suspicious about allegorical abuses. He, He really said some harsh things about the practice. Now, what's interesting about Luther's actual interpretations in exegesis, it is clear that he is interpreting things figuratively or allegorically all over the place, depending on where he's reading and trying to be faithful to the genre, literarily, that he's reading. But, But someone like Luther could be an example of someone who is very critical of the kinds of abuses that were prominent in the years before him because Luther, growing up as a monk, uh, or as a Roman Catholic and becoming a monk, he would have been trained in the quadriga. Mm-hmm. And Luther's reluctance to just, you know, perpetuate those sorts of abuses, it's, it's clear he's reluctant to do that. He wants to be faithful, he wants to bring correction where it's needed, and yet here's what Luther's interpretations demonstrate. Luther shows us that he takes seriously the historical nature of the text, and yet there are spiritual resonances and meanings that he is eager to tease out with his interpretations and sermons. Uh, so we could notice that uh, as a historical example that I think is helpful to us.
0: Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. And a good example of someone who's cautious of allegory, but also willing to to preach allegorically at times. Well, That's one, right. One final question for you. In, in addition to your book, we've mentioned this a couple of times, but but want to recommend that. It's uh, 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory published by Craigle Academic. I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of his book, and he has multiple examples, traces the, the use of typology and allegory through church history, so I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of that book. But are there any other resources, Dr. Chase, that you would recommend for those who are wanting to do further study?
1: I will mention a few of them, actually. The, some of these will be different in length and difficulty level, so maybe maybe readers who enjoy something along the spectrum here would find some of these helpful. Well, first I'd want to mention. Christ in the Old Testament, five views of Christ in the Old Testament that is a newer book published last year. And I know Andrew King uh, was involved in this project to help see it to its completion. This particular book is going to be helpful for readers to watch a dialogue unfold. What are people doing to preach Christ and understand Christ from the Old Testament? What are the ways in which that's pursued? And it's good to read different viewpoints. It's good to see people respond to those viewpoints. And it's like sitting together at a panel discussion where you're opening up this book and you're listening to all these people speak to this important topic. I would submit to you that this is one of the most important things as interpreters we can think about, how to understand Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, That book, I think, will serve readers well. Now, a larger book that uh, Baker published is called Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition by Craig Carter. Uh, I think this would benefit readers because it introduces us to the kinds of assumptions that have been the case throughout church history to undergird these reading strategies. It also reveals to us where certain historical things have taken place that have called into question the Christian assumptions about Scripture, and post-Enlightenment, the rise of different historical critical studies that began to view the nature of the Bible in a different way, and uh, the effect that that had on interpretation. Getting some historical perspective that way is really helpful, and I think interpreting Scripture with a great tradition is a book that will help uh, readers do that. There's a book that Crossway put out some years ago by Jim Hamilton, and Dr. Hamilton wrote a book called What is Biblical Theology? What is biblical theology? And in it, he discusses types, patterns, and symbols in the Bible. This is not a big book. It packs a powerful punch. And I would encourage readers to get a hold of that and uh, to enjoy the kinds of uh, things he's pointing to so that we can all try to be more faithful readers of the text by learning from those around us.
0: Yeah, those those are great recommendations. But the first book, uh, Dr. Andrew King is a colleague here at Midwestern Seminary, Dr. Jason DeRoshi wrote one of the chapters, contributed a chapter. That's a great volume. Dr. Hamilton, I know, was was uh, instrumental in, in your your education and have a lot of respect Amen. for him and would, would second. That book was formative for me as well. Early on in seminary, trying to wrap my arms around biblical theology, his voice has been super helpful. So thank you for those recommendations. And again, thank you so much for joining us.
1: I'm happy to be part of it. Thank you so much, Dr. Bumpers.
0: Thank you again for tuning in to Preaching and Preachers. Until next time, I'm your host, Jared Bumpers. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.